Hi and welcome to Just a GP podcast. This is Charlotte Hespy and it's my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Hester Wilson, who's the guest of Rebecca um, and myself today. And she's going to be telling us a little bit about her journey as a GP researcher. But before we start, I might get you just to give a little introduction about yourself, Hester, and then maybe share a highlight of your current week. Sure. Hi, everybody. My name is Hester Wilson. I'm a GP. I work in in the west of Sydney, and I also work as a staff specialist in addiction medicine for my local health district. Quite clearly, the highlight of my week was going to the Sydney Festival and seeing opera in the park in the domain with all those beautiful young singers. And I actually won two tickets to see West Side Story at the outside opera performance um, at Mrs Macquarie's chair in March. <laughs> oh, wow. Lucky you. <laughs> That does sound like a great highlight. So, Beck, what's your highlight? My highlight of the week is that I've actually just come back from a wonderful holiday with my family and it's actually really shown me how important holidays are and how much better I feel and how much better I am as a doctor having had a good holiday. And actually the highlight is probably that now I'm looking after myself and booking in the next holiday. What a great plan. (laughs) What about yourself, Charlotte? So my highlight is this week, I've just got back, so I'm just two, three days back from having had a whistle-stop trip into India for the wedding of my practice nurse who is Indian by birth and she's lived in Australia for the last six years and so it's been an arranged marriage and I had the pleasure and privilege of being able to go over and join with her in the whole process of her marriage, which for someone who's never been to India was a complete immersion of senses, of noise, of colour, of people and, you know, all of these sort of unfamiliar foods, faces, um, etc. But just what a privilege and what an amazing week it's been. So it's sort of been a, a really weird culture shock coming back to normality in Sydney. Sounds fantastic. It was fantastic, but as I say, it's that sort of like it's just so overwhelming. It's sort of really weird being back in normal world. So back to normality, though, Hester. Um, not that it's normality at all, but I'd love to have you tell us a little bit about your journey into research and about the PhD project. Do you mind sort of regaling a little bit of your tale, if that's okay? So the project that I'm involved in is actually funded by our local PHN. And it's come out of federal funding. And the idea of the federal funding is it's going to solve the ice epidemic. There's a whole story there around why we've got federal funding for an ice epidemic, which is kind of interesting. But we were given some money from the PHN. And the reason that we got the money was that I'd done a little bit of research looking at a a GP and specialist drug and alcohol share care program. And we'd shown by doing some research and looking at some outcomes that we actually improved patient outcomes. It was a small group, 92 patients, but we were able to show that they'd actually improved in terms of their stability, their well-being 
and uh, the number of days that they actually used drugs decreased and in comparison to people that weren't part of the program. So on the basis of that really small study, our local PHN said, oh, we'd really like you to roll out a bigger project. And the local PHN goes across two local health districts plus another hospital network. So it's a large group of people and, and three very distinct services. And so the idea was that we would create a program for those three services that would help those specialist drug and alcohol services that are within the public system in our PHN to better interact and support GPs. So it's called the GLAD project, the GP Liaison in Alcohol and Other Drugs project. And we've been doing a lot of work over the last year in terms of education and uh, health pathways and looking at how our services work with referral options and really working with our staff to help them to have the skills and confidence to, to work with GPs. So I'd started this and looking at doing the larger project, I really wanted to understand how, how would I know uh, what GPs wanted and needed and how would I know how we, if we were having an impact? And the idea that we could roll out what was quite a small program more generally, I really wanted to understand if, if we in fact could do that or if we needed to do it differently depending on the local environment because it is quite a large area. And so we started to do a little bit of research and I put some surveys together and then boss said, hey, you should do a PhD. And I went, nah, I am way too old to start a PhD. But it was just this little little thing in the back of my head for about six months. And then I had some conversations with the University of New South Wales team uh, in the medicine faculty. And I am now enrolled. I'm six months into a part-time PhD, which will focus on just a really small aspect of the whole project that we're doing. So, Tell us, what's the small aspect? <laughs> so there's another facet to this, which was, it was two and a half, nearly three years ago now, I was invited by my local GP training organisation, Synergy, to come and do a one-hour talk to all the GP registrars from around New South Wales and ACT about drug and alcohol. So everything you could ever want to know as a GP reg about drugs and alcohol within an hour. No, you know... <laughs> Which, of course, you can do it. Really easy. easy. So I thought, well, how do I know what it is that this group of perhaps 400 um, uh, GP, trainee GPs or um, early career GPs need? And so the first time I did the talk, I actually did a live poll and asked them some questions just to really help me to focus in that hour on what they needed. And then the second year that I did it, I thought, well, maybe it'd be a good idea to actually ask those questions beforehand. And so I went to GP Synergy's research department and said, look, this is what I'd like to do. And they were fantastic. These were people who were experienced researchers who knew about ethics applications, who knew something about surveys, who knew something about research, because I knew nothing. And we put together a survey, an online survey, ticker box survey that we ran with the registrars before I did the session. And about 67% of them filled in the survey, which was just brilliant. And the survey was really looking at things like, you know, do they consider that it is part of their role as a GP to ask their patients about their tobacco use, about their alcohol use, about benzodiazepine and opioid use, heroin use, cocaine use, cannabis use and methamphetamine use? And, you know, is it part of their role? And then do they feel like 
they have the knowledge? Do they feel like they have the skills? Do they know how to ask? Do they know how to assess? Do they know how to advise? Do they know how to assist? And do they know how to arrange follow-up and referral? So anybody that's looked at the SNAP guidelines, the Smoking, Nutrition, Alcohol and Physical Activity Guidelines from the OCGP might recall the five A's of brief intervention, which is ask, assess, advise, assist and arrange. So I I put together a survey based on that because I couldn't find anything in the literature that really covered what I wanted to look at, which was really looking at that role legitimacy and role adequacy and those skills for GPs and also wanted to know, were they seeing this stuff and what were the challenges for them? So with that survey, I then was able to go on and do the talk and really focus on those areas that I saw were really clearly areas that needed more education for that group in the space of an hour. Can I interrupt at that point? Yeah. What what were the key findings of that particular group? I mean, I know yeah, it was just absolutely. that group. So what we found was that there was really high agreement that, yes, it is my role as a GP registrar to ask my patients about smoking, alcohol, cannabis, opioids, benzos, methamphetamines, cocaine, and uh, heroin. Yes, it is my role. I see it really strongly as my role. But when we went to look at, do you have the skills that you need to ask, to do an assessment, to give brief advice information, to actually treat it and to actually arrange follow-up and referral, the levels were much lower. And it was really interesting when you looked at it. It's no surprise that levels were, that people were much more confident talking about tobacco, but not as confident as perhaps I would like them to be. There were less confident talking about alcohol, but it wasn't too bad. But then for the others... They were um, the opioids and benzodiazepines less confident again, and for the other illicits, really quite unconfident. And when you looked at across those five areas, they were most confident asking and arranging follow-up and referrals. So the other areas there in between, which are perhaps more nuanced, which is around doing a, a comprehensive assessment, giving advice and support and information, and actually treating, they were really very, very unconfident. There was no, in terms of the group, there's 251 people that filled in the survey, there was no difference depending on where you were in your GP training, whether you were rural, regional or uh, metropolitan, your age, your gender, there was no significant difference between them. But what was clear was that they thought it was their role, they were sort of confident asking about smoking and not too bad asking about alcohol, but not so confident with the others. And in terms of looking at, well, where do I send people for support? Yeah, they kind of knew, but not greatly. But to actually have um, do more of an intervention, their, their skills, they felt that they didn't have the skills to do that or the confidence to do that. So then it was really easy for me to think, well, how do I how do I first of all give them the skills to ask and start them along the track of thinking about, well, how do you do an assessment? How do you give people brief advice? Uh, what are the treatment options and where what are your local referral and, and, and options and how do you follow up? You know, once again, it's not possible to do that in great detail in an hour, uh, but it just helped me to really focus in on there. And then when I looked at that data and saw, wow, this is really interesting uh, that, that, you know, you've got, a, you've got a group of young doctors who are saying it is absolutely absolutely part of my role and I don't have the skills, that there's there's a mismatch there. Uh, and so helping them to actually gain those skills is going to be really useful. So is that the step that you're focusing on for your PhD, the attainment of the skills? Uh, well, uh, in a way. So what I'm doing in terms of the PhD is that we're now looking at 
uh, for our project, which is in my local PhD, involving any GP that is involved in any part of the project is doing the survey, that same survey, before they have any kind of intervention, attend any training, uh, that kind of stuff, and then doing it as a follow-up after they've been involved in the program. So really trying to look at with the GPs, what's their current level of, of comfort and confidence in terms of managing um, drug and alcohol issues? And then looking at the intervention that we've been able to do in our local area, has there been a change in terms of their, their comfort and confidence intervening with drug and alcohol issues? So that's what I'm looking at as a kind of a pre and post. It is a bit tricky because the intervention will be different for different people. Some people might come to training. Some people might be looking at health pathways. Some people might be referring lots of patients. Some people might do their opioid prescribing course. So they're going to, there's different parts to the intervention. So it is a bit tricky trying to work out, well, what does, what does that actually mean? And the other thing is, do I have a control group? So what I'm doing there, and I don't know quite if it's going to happen yet, is I'm talking to the other PHNs around the state to see if I can do pre and post with them as well. The issue is that many of our PHNs around New South Wales do actually have programs in drug and alcohol to support GPs. So it's it's an interesting kind of process that's just kind of rolled out of this thing that I was just doing off my own back. I have to say the most interesting thing for me about it is that I'm learning a lot about how not to do things, how not to do research, how not to do surveys. You know, it's it's been a it's been a fantastic uh, learning curve, but I do hope in in the long run that what we will have is a, is a survey that can be of some use, and that we will be able to see some change over time that helps us to focus on well, what are the aspects that actually do make a difference. I really like the idea that the intervention is individualised to the choice of the GP. Mm. Do the interventions, do you have to pre-approve them to say that they're at an adequate level to be included in the study or is it purely at the GP's choice that I think this would be a good learning tool for me? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I'm not dictating what GPs do and don't do, you know, and, and we're certainly wanting to take account of, you know, if you as a GP have done some reading of journals around drug and alcohol, then you've had, you, you've done some education for yourself, you, you know, so it's, it is a bit variable because the, the intervention is kind of this black box of possibilities. And I don't think I'm going to have the numbers to really tease out perhaps what what is more effective i'm not sure whether whether that will whether that will work i guess when i'm thinking about it i'm thinking more about can i show that any intervention makes a difference to a gp's sense of their of yes it is part of my role and yes i have the skills feel like i have the skills i have the confidence to undertake this work. I mean, bottom line is you won't know from that whether anybody actually does anything. We're looking at attitudes rather than looking through the data in their computers and seeing, well, yes, they actually did ask these questions and, you know, I'm not looking at it from that point of view. But we do know that attitudes are important in terms of what people um, do do, but uh, it, it's, it's about attitudes rather than anything else. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that whole thing about just making people comfortable. I mean, I found it fascinating that everybody was exactly the same, which actually is, Mm. I suppose, a really nice thing. So it doesn't matter what medical school, what hospital, 
mm. sort of who you are, where you've come from, there's still that same thing of, yes, this is my role. Yes, I can assist in guiding you somewhere, but then all of those other mm. things about maybe understanding it more or taking yeah. it that one step further is the bit that we just don't really know much about. Yeah, yeah. And I think when I look at it, you know, and I, you know, if you look at the five A's, I, I look at them, there's there's two core things that I reckon we as GPs need to say, look, I'm going to do this. The first one is asking, you know, so you're doing, you're doing um, some screening or some case finding. And then, you know, that referral on, if that's the only things that you do, if it is you know what, you're drinking 15 standard drinks of alcohol a day, I'm a bit concerned. Look, I don't have a great deal of time to work through this with you. But hey, you know, your local drug and alcohol centre is here, let me write you a referral so you can go and see them. You know, if that's the kind of the base core level of of engagement that I'd really love us to do more as GPs. And then there will be a group who say, well, look, I want to be able to manage this myself. I want to actually do a a detailed assessment, comprehensive assessment of someone who's drinking 15 standard drinks a day. I do want to have the skills to give the brief uh, um, support and information. I do want to be able to treat it. I want to do detoxes, you know, but not everybody's going to want to do that or be in a position where they can because of the environment that they work in or the hours that they work. So, you know, in some ways, the way that I've come to see it is that there are these core skills which are around asking the question and referring on and then for a group of GPs who are interested in this area that there are additional skills that they can learn to actually manage patients within their within their setting you know one of the things that's clear about drug and alcohol and this is apart from tobacco but all the other drugs including the non-medical use of um, opioids and benzodiazepines is that four out of ten Australians undertake these behaviours. So they're really, really common. And we're going to be seeing them in the general practice setting. But what we know from the literature is that quite often we don't ask. And so we don't know. And there's a whole heap of reasons why doctors don't ask. And it's totally legitimate. Well, it's so much easier not to ask. Well, exactly. So, and one of the, you know, there's also time and, you know, that, that I don't feel like I have the skills. I don't feel like I know what to do next, you know, those kinds of things. But if, you, if, you've, if you've got programs in place and if you've got some training in place, so the GPs do have some confidence that they've got the skills and they're more likely to ask. Yeah. Well, there's also the fear of opening up Pandora's box. And I think that's something. So sometimes we don't ask because we know that the answer is going to be something we're going to have to do something with. Yeah, and look, I think I mean I think the Pandora's box one is, is is fascinating. I think part of the thinking that we have around that is if I open up this box, I've got to solve it now, and you actually don't. And that's the thing about risky and dependent drug and alcohol use is that they're chronic conditions. And it's a bit, you know, the, in a way, it's a bit like saying, I'm not going to ask about diabetes because I've got to solve it all today. Of course we don't. They're chronic conditions and they're something that we see people with over time. And some people do really well and the natural history is different for different people. And but so I think part of what we, what the dread <laughs> that a lot of us have about opening Pandora's box is, oh my God, I'm going to have to solve this here and now today. 
and we actually don't. And there are other services out there that can support people. And that's the other thing for me. And this is one of the coming from it from the other side in terms of the specialist services. I think many specialist services have been missing in action for us in general practice. And there's been a sense of I need to manage this all because there is no specialist service. And look, you know, for sure, there are some uh, regional, rural and remote areas where services are pretty few and far between. But in the metro area, there are very good services, but they've kind of been missing in action. They've not been part of our referral pathways. They've not been something that we thought about. Uh, and Well, also, can, if I can interrupt, Hester, there's also been a sense that they exclude us yes. as the GP and they can be quite condescending yes. Yes. about absolutely. Role. And I think that's, that's, that is changing and I think it's great. I mean, certainly my experience of interacting with my local hospital now to when I first went into general practice is a completely different experience. Now I get phoned, I get told about things, I actually get sent documentation. Now I know that's not an Australia-wide mm. experience and and quite honestly that's taken a lot of work to get to that point. Mm. But it is does colour how we think about our referrals because if you're going to refer to a team, somebody who you know is really vulnerable and we're looking after the whole of them, the drug stuff is often a large mm. bit of the whole mm. of them, but it's not it, yep. the everything. And so sometimes they get sucked into it and not everything is getting looked after and that can be Oh, really a- absolutely. And that is a huge issue for any specialist service because you're only dealing with your particular special area. And look, and there's a whole history there around drug and alcohol services and why they don't interact with GPs. Uh, I'll I'll leave the whole hospital interaction stuff, but just come to the the specialist drug and alcohol services. One of the things about our specialist drug and alcohol services is they are actually primary services themselves. Anybody can walk in off the street to actually become a, a, a client or a patient of that service. And the reason for that is that because drug and alcohol use is stigmatized, we needed to have something where people could go, where they weren't you know, where they didn't need a referral because that's a that's a barrier to access. And but from my point of view, the big shift, and we're doing lots of work with our staff around this, is you're you're, you're right that we do want to maintain that primary access so that people can walk in off the street, but we also want to link them in with GPs who can do just as you say, manage all their other health issues because we can't. We can't manage their hypertension. We can't manage their uh, other preventative health, you know, things like mammograms and pap smears and all that kind of stuff. We can't do it. It's not what we're there for. And there are a group of people, and it's certainly with people that have really significant and complex drug and alcohol issues, their physical health and their mental health is is often very, very poor. And helping them to actually access good care for their mental and physical health is really, really important. Um, and it doesn't always happen. And it, and certainly, you know, when we're thinking about stigmatised conditions, the services that work with people that have stigmatised conditions actually become stigmatised as well. And we perceive ourselves as stigmatised. We perceive ourselves as being different. Uh, and so there's a whole really interesting kind of dynamic that happens there that we really do need to start changing. That, you know, the other thing is for many of the, the people that come to drug and alcohol services, many of them have had really quite stigmatising, discriminating um, experiences with other health services, including GPs. And, and to my mind, that, that, is, that is a real problem uh, and something that we do need to work towards changing. And when I think about 
you know, when I come back to that idea of having a core, you know, what are your core baseline skills that I'd love everybody, every GP to do? You know, that's why I come back to that core that, you know, you may not be somebody that's all that comfortable with drug and alcohol use. I mean, there's no doubt that it does have a moral overlay. And I would really be encouraging people to be aware of what their moral overlay is and put it beside them to actually offer their patients care. But if it is that I'm really not comfortable with this, ask the question and refer on for further help. And what we want to have happen then from the from the specialist services is that letter comes in, that referral comes in, the patient is seen, the specialist service writes back to the GP, gives them information about the care that's happening for the drug and alcohol care. But so the patient can continue having their other care, their, their general care in, in the drug in the um, GP setting. And when the drug and alcohol use settles, as it often does, we can discharge them for our service back to the GP with the GP knowing if things do become complex or or unstable or you know return again that they can the patient can come back to us so that's the perfect scenario and I know it doesn't happen everywhere but it is changing and there is a real desire on the part of drug and alcohol services to work better with GPs and in fact I did do a little survey with staff in my local LHD and working in the specialist setting the first thing was that they thought absolutely it is really important that patients have GPs tick they thought that quite a lot of their patients didn't have GPs. I think probably our patients do have GPs more often than we know. And so there was, there's a real shift there around, well, let's make sure that we ask and make sure that we ask for permission to contact GPs around the patient's care. The other thing that was really interesting was they generally had really positive thoughts about GPs, that GPs do want to see patients, that they do treat patients well, that they uh, they are doing drug and alcohol work. They were concerned that GPs didn't have time and that care in general practice could be costly for patients. But generally, their, their attitudes towards GPs was actually quite positive, much, much more positive than I thought it might be, actually. That doesn't actually surprise me because that's sort of the feedback I've been getting across some other work we've been doing as well, including like accident and emergency physicians who actually value, again, the the GP input when sometimes we feel... Well, I feel, I don't know about you guys, that sometimes there's a bit of a, con- well, it's condescending attitude to us. But in actual fact, I think, you know, it's it's more that they know how busy we are and how complex the work is that yep. we do and do understand the environment in which yep. we're working. Yeah. I also just wanted to make a comment there because I work regionally and there are very limited drug and alcohol services, is that you don't have to refer just to a drug and alcohol service. You can actually refer to another GP, same as how a GP will have an interest in women's health or kids or skin. A lot of the drug and alcohol referrals I make are actually in practice to a G- another GP who actually is really good mm. at that work and they get seen mm. much faster than they would if I referred them to a drug and alcohol unit. And that's how I mm-hmm. manage essentially my low risk patients. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look, that's that's brilliant. You know, and once again, I think it's one of the really lovely things about general practice that you can create a, a workflow and, you know, take on those um, specific interests that you love. And we have this incredible freedom to do that. And that's, you know, it's great that you as a GP, you can say, look, you know what, I'm not very good at this. And I'm, and I'm really, you know, I'm, I might be able to diagnose it, but I'm not going to treat it. 
I'm going to send it on to someone who I know is really good that's going to give the patient good care. That makes makes total sense, total sense to me. You know, like for me in general practice, I don't do enough skin excisions to do it well. Nobody would want a skin excision from me. So if somebody comes in and they need that, I'll refer them on to my colleagues who, who you know, who, who are much better at it than me. You know, that, that to me makes total, total sense. I have a question for you coming back to PhD. Mm. So sounds like you already had a project or already had a topic that you were interested in or that you were already looking into. How much work was yep. it to go from I have something that I think is really cool or that I'm already doing to I'm going to do a PhD? I think more than anything else for me, it was getting my head around it. Oh my God, here I am, this middle-aged lady. Am I really going to start this long process of a PhD? What does it actually mean? Certainly my friends that have been through PhDs, had it had been a bit of a slog and it was like, well, how, why would I do that to myself? I think it is a little different, as you say, Rebecca, because I already had a project and I'd already started thinking and I've been doing a lot of thinking. It, what I've found, and look, I've only just started. So, you know, if we talk again in a few years' time, I might be uh, feeling very different about it. But what I've found is I've actually put some, I've corralled some time, put some time aside, and I'm really enjoying the chance just to think and the chance to read those articles that I've had sitting in my, you know, saved somewhere to, to read someday, that I'm coming back to those. And it's just, it's really giving me a chance to sit down and think. And I, you know, as I said before, I have no research skills. I have no stat skills. I have, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm absolutely a beginner with this stuff. But what has become clear is that while there might be people who are really experienced researchers, they don't have the clinical knowledge. They don't have the background that I have in it, you know, so I'm kind of, you know, it's surrounded by this this sense of having worked in this area. So I've worked in general practice for, you know, 25 plus years. And many of my patients during that time have been people that have had chronic complex drug and alcohol issues in the general practice setting. I get the clinical part of it, whereas researchers don't always do that. So I'm coming at it from another direction. And even though I don't have the research skills, I'm getting them pretty rapidly. It's And I'm really enjoying the chance to, to learn new skills and to really get my head around what does evidence actually mean and, and how much evidence is there and, and how much do we need and how do we ensure that the evidence that we use makes sense for us in the primary care setting. You know, one of the things that as, as I read more and I look at the evidence, you look at the evidence for the things, some of the things that we do in general practice, and there's absolutely no evidence that they work in general practice. We're kind of extrapolating out from very different environments. And, you know, and, and I guess the more that I do, the more I'm thinking, oh, we need so much more research that's general practice based, that is us researching ourselves rather than being subjects for other people who who may or may not actually really get us and may reinterpret that whole experience of working in general practice in a way that isn't actually meaningful. Here, here, that's exactly my sort of attitude, Hester, and it's the, the, the world we work in is so more complex because we are actually dealing with the real yep. world and the person who has got hypertension that is mixed with all of the things that otherwise get excluded in those purest yeah. studies that tell us that this is how yeah. you manage something, you know, because everything is otherwise always excluded. And, you know, how, how do you know 
where, you know, which bit of the patient do I manage and what's the most important bit? Well, obviously it's the bit that the patient thinks yeah. is the most important combined with me adding that expertise, but we just don't have those sorts of studies there and everybody looks at you in horror when you talk about it and goes, <laughs> exactly. oh, it's just Yeah, exactly, complex. exactly. Yeah, and look, it is, it's, it, it, you know, I think it, and, and, you know, your podcast is called Just a GP and I think part of the stuff that we get from hospitals is, is oh, you're not a specialist, you're just a GP, you don't know anything and I, and I do think there's a little bit of us that is a little bit sensitive towards that, that we kind of, you know, we expect to get that from our specialist colleagues and when we don't we're kind of surprised and that's exactly why yeah. we called this podcast <laughs> yeah, exactly. just a exactly because it is actually on the we are not you know there is nothing just mm. about us but you know let's mm. go with the flow and actually say this is mm. a wonderful thing mm. to be and and look the, and the, the capacity that we have to see people over time to be involved in their journey over time is just it's 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 precious and it's wonderful and you know I guess you know my particular interest is is drug and alcohol medicine and particularly at the moment thinking a lot about tobacco and how we interact with tobacco as well but that whole thing around those lifestyle issues that do that are stigmatized that do have a moral overlay you know we've got the whole thing going on in New South Wales about pill testing with our premier am I allowed to be political yeah go for it <laughs> with our current premier in New South Wales doing a Nancy Reagan and saying just say no and let's get more police and sniffer dogs out there because we know that that doesn't work you know it's interesting how that interacts with people's choice and agency and you know the other thing about it being intoxicated is that we know that as a species many of us love to be intoxicated and we have done that for millennia and it isn't going to change and how do we work with people around making sure that if they want to get intoxicated they do it in a safer way and, you know and that's the thing about drug testing the pill testing at, at festivals you know I, I don't really want my kids to use pills there are risks but if they're going to use them I want them to be tested so I know that they're going to use them in a safe way. And the other really important part of the pill testing is that it's a chance for health-based people to have conversations around that, that help to minimise harm in a more general sense. You know, so the idea that you just say no, is, it doesn't work. You know, we just, you know, we need to be doing things that actually work. And I guess that comes back to the whole thing around evidence and, you know, PhDs in general practice so that we really can sort out what works and have that data behind us to, to support the things that we do, you know, the things that we do well. Yes, but then on that caveat is not using that as an excuse for not doing something because oh, there is absolutely. no evidence. Instead, say, well, let's do it and yeah. gather in the evidence, you know, because that's where um, at the moment it's being used as as the classic, well, we can't possibly do it because yeah. there's no evidence. It's like, well, why don't you set up a, a good part, you know, yeah. let's do it for the next you know, a year, two years yeah. and see yeah. what, what does it look like? Does it look like there's some evidence rather than yeah, just saying yeah. no? But we could but continue it, on but, that you know, And forever. you're absolutely, you know, the, the need to have more general practice research. Yes, 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 yes. But we don't have structures to do it. And we're not, we're not paid to do it. You know, it's, it's, I mean, I guess for me doing my PhD through university, I have to say it's been wonderful. I have the most amazing supervisors who are just amazing, but I'm doing it in my own time. I'm, I've cut my work back. I've cut, you know, I've cut my pay back to do it because I, I want to do it. 
but you know we do need more structure in place we do need more monetary support you know so that you can so that's another conversation, Hester. So watch this space for just a GP. And, in fact, look at the media at the moment because there's some mm, good conversations mm. going out about that. And I will put in my oars worth as the RSEGP current board chair is that I'm certainly strongly advocating that we develop mm-hmm. pathways to support young but also the experienced clinician yep. GPs yep. into going into academia and doing this sort of research because I agree with you that one of the things that for me doing a PhD in in older life has been the beauty of that exactly the same thing you know I'm a clinician and my clinician skills are invaluable in terms of how I design or see what it is Mm. that I want to get Mm. out of this research so Although I think we could keep talking <laughs> forever and a day, and this is so oh, interesting, I not, and I, that's why I love yeah, being a GP. Yeah, look, I'm just not sure if I've, I've described what I'm doing very well because I start as I start speaking about it, there's all these different aspects to it. So I hope it's kind of been vaguely understandable. <laughs> well, it's only been understandable for me, and hopefully Beck can say the same yeah. thing. I agree, but I do think we could keep going, but that probably it'll get too long. So what I'm going to suggest at this point, Hester, is that you could maybe give us a a clinical tip to take home. Oh, a clinical tip. Mm, Just trying to think. I, I, look, I was, I was thinking of something else, but what I'm going to talk about is just, I've been doing a little bit of research around stigma and discrimination. And I think the tip that I would give to everybody listening to this to take home is to just think about how we how we label people and really starting to and it, look it may sound a bit PC but the research shows that it makes a difference to people that if we put the humanity of that person first and we don't talk about them as the diabetic or the hypertensive or the addict that we talk about them as a person the person a person with alcohol addiction, a person with diabetes, a person with hypertension, that actually there's good evidence that that makes a difference to the person's experience of care, and particularly in the drug and alcohol sphere, that it means that they will actually access care. Great tip. Thank you for that, Hester. Beck, what would you like to share this week? I would like to share an app that I was reminded of today by a fellow doctor and a shout out to Dr Rodney White from Monash Uni and Hospital who helped me answer a tricky clinical question about one of my breastfeeding patients and the app is LACTMED so L-A-C-T-M-E-D and it is a resource for looking up any medicine that you're wanting to put a patient on or that the patient's already on and whether or not that's safe for breastfeeding. And it's enormous resource with lots of evidence in it and one I'd completely forgotten about until today. Isn't it great when you can get reminded by them, by colleagues too, that joy of the, the sharing, going how to do things and reminding yourself again and then hopefully it'll embed somewhere in that niche in your brain and not get forgotten. So my one this week is slightly, again, a a different one, which is sort of on the idea of the whole measles things. There's quite a number of um, measles outbreaks, particularly in um, Sydney at the moment, and I'm struck by how many of the children who've come back have been unvaccinated. 
which sort of has got me thinking about the, the tool we have, which is we have a our practice subscribes to a thing called SmartFacts, so that every single one of our patients, three to four days after they have a vaccination, gets sent an SMS text about whether they've had any adverse reaction to the the vaccination and they are able to just simply answer yes or no and then if they've said yes they get asked another question about you know how serious it was and then they get to that's a again sort of a yes or no and then they get a bit more detail and what this is whole part of it's actually come out of a a GP's work in uh, Perth that's he's truly amazing to actually be able to look at the overall safety of vaccinations and particularly in the Australian setting and when there are sort of blips. But from my perspective as a GP, what's amazing is that we've been participating in using this now for about three years. I get a report every day. But the absolute safety of the vaccines that we give is just phenomenal. You know, there really aren't the adverse reactions and things. It's just extraordinarily safe and it's so nice when we can capture that and be able to have the data and look at it and show patients who are concerned that it is not something safe. It sounds great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.